Are you ready to explore how people coordinate? To build and empower your community to take action and solve problems? To coordinate without any central authority? What? Bring in the OGs of the pre-crypto decentralized coordination space together with the pioneers of the cutting-edge technologies to fuse their ancient knowledge with the latest tools in order to fight coordination failures, slay Moloch and continue the endless search for the holy grails of decentralized coordination. Welcome to the front lines of coordination. Fuck. My brain is already melting. I hope you survive. Welcome, Trent, to the Frontiers of Coordination podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. And how are you doing on this day? I am doing pretty good. Woke up, had some coffee, and then uh, first, you're, you're first on my my docket of things to do. So you're getting a fresh brain, or or I'm still waking up. Hopefully, it's less of the the latter. <laughs> yeah, hope it's the the former. But you just said hot coffee, so that's good. All right. Yeah, care to do a bit of uh, intro to yourself and uh, what you do for the people who don't know you from the Ethereum space. Of course. So my my general intro uh, is I guess go back to university. I studied architecture and design in university and did that professionally for a few years. And then over time, I realized there were some things I didn't like about that work. And also found crypto around that time. I found the Ethereum subreddit. Saw one of the um, one of the early missed demos and that kind of like uh, blew my mind and i was instantly hooked and just got deeper and deeper into the community this was around um like 2015 or 2016 running early nodes things like that just trying to understand what this technology is and i'm coming from a non-developer non-technical background so just trying to understand what distributed systems are this was also during the the white paper era so i was just trying to immerse myself and, and read a ton few years later, decided to leave architecture and try to work on this stuff full time. And uh, this is around 2018. Did some part-time stuff, volunteered at a bunch of hackathons, and then eventually found some uh, work for the company called WhiteBlock. And then later I worked at ETH Global, and now I'm at the Ethereum Foundation. I mean, like many people in this space, you go, nobody starts uh, getting a degree in cryptocurrency or decentralized common good building activities. So a lot of people are coming from outside the space and that, that mirrors my experience as well. Um, so at the Ethereum Foundation, where I've ended up and where I am currently, I work on a team called Protocol Support, which does a lot of coordination around network upgrades, around just long-term maintenance or stewardship of these core uh, like coordination processes, so the all core devs call, which happens every two weeks, helping to organize or helping to structure the inputs that are coming in for how the protocol is changing, how the community can participate in that that stewardship process, or how do we get their their feedback to protocol changes considered, things like that. And I and I work on projects like Protocol Guild, which we'll get into. Um, but I've also done a bunch of other smaller things and the another larger project which people may be aware of is the KCG ceremony, which ran for eight months starting in January. And this is 
people could contribute some randomness to this public ceremony and then the the output it's a it gets put into the core protocol so if you participated in that or anybody listening participated that's pretty cool and we're wrapping that up now so i do a, a bunch of different projects and yeah those those are a few of them and it sounds like uh, quite a journey yeah 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 Starting from the, the the moment that you got in, like, what do you think was it that really like hooked you into it? So like, you you found Ethereum and found the Web3 and started researching. And what was it like that really called for you, which like got you to eventually leave the architecture and go full time uh, crypto? I I think like I, like I mentioned, probably the the missed demo. Which at our, do you know what I'm referring to, or is this? Yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. For anybody who's not aware, listening, the Mist was a project from around that time. I think they, you know, probably 2015 or started in 2014. And it was this idea of sort of a browser or an app explorer, an app store built on a decentralized foundation. So you would download it and run it next to your node and you could access all of these different applications or places to swap tokens. I don't remember what the what the examples they gave. I think it was all very, very hypothetical at the time. But seeing seeing this concept that had, people had working code and then I was able to download it and actually experience what it was like running a, a Geth node on my on my computer, it was really captivating and I think part of the draw for me was the contrast to architecture was, you know, working in a professional field, they're dealing with the structures of buildings and have to be very conscious of budget. So it's much more conservative than this crazy world of digital code where you have all these ideals and things that people are pushing for in new ways to to organize activity. And, And that was very, very compelling and probably naive in a lot of ways. But that was at least what what hooked me in was that seeing that first demo and then yeah just getting deeper and deeper into the community trying to understand why people thought this was important yeah all of these things were probably informative to my experience then but that that was the main thing that pulled me in and i like to joke with people that i'm not a technical person i'm not a developer let's say i'm not a developer and and that i'm not writing code i do have familiarity I guess if anybody sticks around long enough in crypto, you'll be somewhat technical because you have to at least understand the concepts or be able to talk about them. But I'm not, yeah, I'm not a developer, so I didn't have the the capacity to actually evaluate what all of these, you know, Ethereum wasn't the only project I came across at the time. But I, I, I just consider myself lucky that I happened to land in the Ethereum community and not any of these other, you know, the projects that are zombie coins now or they're just kind of they exist but they don't exist and i I just happened to find a community that managed to make it through the cycles (laughs) right so much wasted potential in dead projects but uh, you're a you're a great example of like how you can carve a role for yourself like uh, you don't have to be technical you don't have to like come from any background that's in any way related to this space and still like find a role like a lot of people still uh, think like, oh, like I'm not a developer, so there's nothing for me to do. <laughs> but there's yeah, infinite things. Right. Yeah. I mean, and to be clear, like most of the work is technical, but there's it would be silly to say that non-technical or other types of skills aren't needed. There's definitely a need for people who can write well, who can communicate, who can coordinate. Like this stuff is really, really important as well. Definitely. But yeah, it's the uh, same for me. I 
before I got into crypto, I was uh, doing plumbing and like gas pipes, uh, engineering and central heating systems, like <laughs> completely unrelated. Nice. Yeah, I, I grew up doing uh, construction and yeah, so I, I've, I've done and I've done some renovations on different projects before. So I got a little bit of experience. <laughs> That's what got you into architecture then, right? That is probably part of it, but also like summers. I, I didn't have anything going on, so I would just go work with my dad on whatever jobs he was doing. Got it. Uh, but yes, I was doing that, but I was always uh, researching and like interested in these sort of alternative uh, socioeconomic systems and like uh, eco-villages and all of that sort of things. I don't know if you if you watch or if you remember that uh, the Zeitgeist documentaries. No, I, I haven't seen it. You'll have to send it. Well, the, the first one is all about like uh, conspiracy theories and talking about like well, the, the real conspiracies as well about like how money works, how banking works and like all of that. And then the second and third one uh, talk about this uh, project called the Venus Project, which uh, proposes this uh, sort of, uh, they were calling it a, a resource-based economy. And it was uh, proposed this sort of uh, a next step for humanity, like uh, post-capitalist society, post-market, where it's all about like, allocating resources where they are needed rather than like where the market uh, says they should go and uh, yeah, like was built by this uh, guy called uh, Jacques Fresco who's researching and uh, writing about that his whole life like he grew up during the the 1920s uh, stock market crash and the, the economic crisis and was like okay what the fuck is going on like all of these factories exist all of these people who are looking for work exist like why can't we just put these things together and produce things. The whole uh, economic crisis in completely made up thing. And then, yeah, he started working on this sort of uh, vision for an alternative system that's like not based on the market and uh, on fiat currencies, but he called it the research-based economy. And yeah, like when you watch it these days, yeah, when I watch this, like it made a lot of impact on me when I was in high school. Uh, nowadays, like you can see, some some parts of it can't exactly uh, work. But yeah, that, that's what uh, got me interested in that sort of things, and that uh, then I started researching like eco villages, self-sustainable living, and all that sort of uh, things. And then uh, when I found Ethereum, it was like my mind was blown because it was like, okay, so like this is the technology needed for being able to scale these sort of uh, systems like the eco-villages are running on to civilization scale. So I saw this as yeah, this uh, technological infrastructure for building uh, new kinds of uh, socioeconomic systems. And yeah, that's what uh, <laughs> that's what hooked me and that's what uh, drives me to this day. My first demo was the, the Colony project. So that's what <laughs> made it click for me nice another early project yeah was it was it just a video demo or were you actually like messing around with the i don't know a DAO or something it was devcon one uh demo i thought it was an app demo but i think it was just a design demo <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> because it never it never looked like that uh, later <laughs> nice but yeah that's what got me and i remember installing mist and taking like 24 hours or more to sync it yeah at the time i don't know if it was just me not knowing what was going on but i think in order to send transactions your node had to be fully synced which seems bizarre looking back on it like you should be able to sign a transaction without necessarily having your node synced but yeah i remember like trying to do something and i had to <laughs> 
try and like for weeks i was trying to sync my my geth node and i had really horrible wi-fi and <laughs> yeah i was like this is this is super annoying i can't even send a transaction yeah it was probably a lot more than 24 hours it just seems so ridiculous now that i condensed it to 24 hours <laughs> because you're like yeah you have to download the whole blockchain to <laughs> be able to use it and people talk about UX now, and it's like, yeah, <laughs> should have seen it in 2016. Oh, man. And yeah, it was a Web3 browser, but there were, like, no depths, so you installed it, and there was pretty much nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah, like, there's nothing to use. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit better now. <laughs> there's some stuff going on. Yeah, so what would you say that uh, keeps you going after these years and through multiple bear markets where a lot of people just give up on crypto mm, yeah it's that's a good question i think for me the the thing that's maybe most motivating is like maybe for another person this would be uh this would be something to turn them away but for me I, like we haven't actually reached the full potential of what this stuff can do and like i said for somebody else this might be really demoralizing or they're just frustrated that it's taking so long and they're like, okay, I'm gonna go do something else. But the thing that keeps me interested and still contributing is because I think there's still so much to do and it's worthwhile to try and shape the path that we're taking to get to whatever future is possible. So it's maybe, yeah, just that sense that there's still something to build. There's still a lot of work to do to shape this block space substrate that we're all constructing together and maybe more selfishly it's just interesting to be along for the ride i find a lot of value in the relationships of people that i work with the the type of work that i'm doing yeah at this point i don't know <laughs> if i had to go this is a sunk cost maybe but if i had to go work somewhere else in a different field it would be it would be kind of a shock to to work in any other traditional industry at this point so I'm along for the ride for better or worse, um, hopefully for the better. Yeah, I don't even how, know how, could, how I would uh, get a job in any other industry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like the energy, the optimism here is contagious. Like everybody's, uh, yeah, has this uh, spirit rather than like in normal jobs where it's more like people are less optimistic about the future and uh, all of that. Right. And I mean, whether the work that we're doing has predictive capabilities or like whether we're actually shaping the future hopefully we are but maybe it's more of a <laughs> it's more convincing than it actually is or it feels like we're doing more than we actually are but i think just being engaged in the process is useful either way because you get to learn how a system works or, or how a techno-social system is structured and that's that's useful regardless yeah definitely and it really does feel meaningful is there any like uh, specific use cases or specific projects or anything that you're looking forward to now that the scaling is quote unquote sold? <laughs> quote unquote, <laughs> it's coming, quote unquote soon. I mean, yeah, that's a, we could probably have a whole discussion on scaling. It's, it's getting there. I mean, it definitely, it's taken its time as these things go. The, the long meandering path of figuring out what doesn't work first and then slowly working your way towards some shared conception there's this are you familiar have you ever heard the, the term carcinization no carcinization is this 
think it's a term from biology or it's a concept related to biology and it's this idea that over the course of evolution of different species and different organisms nature has consistently like in a handful of different examples i think i don't know maybe 10 maybe more it's evolved into crab-like creatures from different parts of let's say the hereditary tree but for some reason it keeps settling on this eight-legged hard-shelled marine animal and so sometimes i think about that in the context of blockchains we're seeing people settle on what like the, this ideal maybe not ideal but <laughs> a particular shape of a technology that's structured in a particular way and that design is being settled on or is being arrived to independently or maybe not independently because people are sharing work but it's being a like this is the this is the convergence point for a lot of design so it's interesting to see this playing out and i think differentiated heterogeneous Execution layers is sort of like the crab-like form of blockchains. Uh, whether in Cosmos, they would call it app chains and Ethereum L2s. And obviously there are some differences in the constructions. Polkadot would call it parachains. It seems like all of crypto is coming to this crab-like form. And then similar things around like splitting out data publishing or data availability. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next year or so and whether we're all converging on the design that works or like psyoping ourselves into a design that doesn't work. But so yeah, long, long response. But yeah, it's exciting to see scaling happening. Personally, my bias is always towards things that uh, help people. I've never been much of a finance guy. So all of the I mean, I know they're I know they're important for markets oriented people or, or projects that are particularly focused on the finance aspect of these networks. But I've never been particularly interested in perps or these various. See, I can only even I can I can name one. <laughs> uh, whatever these like financial tools that really dominate crypto so far. I'm not super interested in that. I have a much deeper interest in things that are more related to humans on the social layer. So I love to see remittance use cases, things that leverage mutual aid. Things that reproduce the social, the existing social dynamics off-chain, and allow people to make them stronger or more capable of things that are not—they're not capable of doing off-chain. So, like sharing, like pooled sharing systems, you don't have to worry about somebody committing a certain amount. Like there's a lot less trust that's involved, and therefore these things can scale much larger. Uh, if they're on chain, obviously there there are costs that come along with it. But like you said, now that we have scaling or cheaper, somewhat cheaper block space, and hopefully much cheaper block space in the future, these social applications maybe now that they'll they'll have some block space that is suited for their their use cases. So, yeah, these social activities, remittances, things involving mutual aid. I love social graphs and like being able to weight social graphs. I think something like EAS. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but that's one that seems generic enough and neutral enough and it's getting a lot of adoption and it'll be exciting to see how it plays out. And then obviously, like, again, related to social coordination, a lot of I'm, I'm very, very interested in DAOs and collectively managing resources or, or funds. Things like that are, are always super interesting to me. Yeah, makes sense. And they're finally get, getting there. Right. 
the last bull run was all about uh, DeFi and then about NFTs and I hope that uh, the next one will finally be finally have a lot more great DAOs come out of it. And uh, yeah, so for the people who don't know ES, the, the Ethereum attestation service, what is it and why is it useful? So I'm not I'm not part of the project in any way. I've just been aware of it and I have probably a more superficial understanding, but it's a way for individuals or organizations to make attestations for other people in their network or people outside of their network as well. So you have some sort of connection or some relationship with a node in a graph, whether it's a person or a contract or a group of people, and you can make specific claims about it. They can validate those claims. And like I said, it's a, it's a generic system, so you can design any number of different frames or different ways of structuring the attestations with uh, different characteristics or different attributes. It's general purpose enough that you can do a lot of things with it. And similar to how Ethereum is like this, this base layer, this expressive base layer that people can build experiments on top of. I think things like EAS, uh, which are general purpose enough, can hopefully accomplish something similar where you will see a lot of other projects leveraging the network effects of everyone using a similar solution to build something interesting on top of it. Yeah, everybody was talking about uh, the verifiable credentials and all of these different many different uh, experiments in building them. And now it seems that the, the space is sort of converging on the EES. Right, yeah. I would personally love to use it inside uh, my meta profiles in MetaGame. So my meta profiles are these like decentralized profiles built on top of uh, ceramic. And uh, people can like, yeah, add uh, yeah, like the basic stuff, like the name, bio and the picture, but also like what skills they have, what DAOs they're a member of and uh, NFTs they have and like, yeah, a bunch of other things. And uh, like, for example, skills, there's no real way to like verify skills besides knowing somebody and working with them. And so I think that would be very useful because like people can just uh, add whatever skill to their profile and uh, yeah, like just having other people say, okay, I trust this person. Like I'm verifying that they're not lying about their skills. Yeah, it's like link LinkedIn um, credentials. All right, there's a, there's a name the for it. endorsements endorsement yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah pretty much just uh on chain i guess <clears throat> that would be a cool use case for me and uh yeah so getting into the protocol guild what is the the protocol guild yeah this is um the, the project that consumes most of my time probably <laughs> and has really for the last uh, two years at this point so i'll just give a quick history of it in I think October of 2021, there was this recurrent conversation around how do we incentivize people to work on the core protocol. And this is not something that's new to the Ethereum community, but it uh, comes up like every two years almost on schedule. And again, it came up in 2021. I think it's in our documentation, we link to that discussion. And the outcome was a suggestion from Danny Ryan. He's one of the researchers at the Ethereum Foundation. And his suggestion was effectively, you know, what if we make it a norm that every project building on Ethereum donates 1% of their tokens to the list of core contributors. And in this way, you can open up ecosystem funding from the broader ecosystem to this group of people who are doing the very important work of maintaining the base layer that everyone else is building on top of. And simultaneously, you can rebalance some of the incentives. So if you have these projects with 
massive treasuries or significant investment, which in some cases may pull people out of core protocol development. This is one way to rebalance the incentives, the financial incentives at least, by contributing back a percent of the financial upside, or at least the financial value that they're able to generate by leveraging the Ethereum infrastructure, uh, the core protocol, the base layer that's maintained by these individuals. So he proposed, you know, it fit in a tweet. It's a very simple idea on its face. And the work that I was concerned with was taking this idea and actually making it a reality. So I worked with a bunch of other core contributors, core developers around that time. We wrote up an initial, I wouldn't call it a white paper, but just an article summarizing what this type of mechanism could look like. Published it on New Year's Eve of uh, that year. I think I had, I was at home, I had COVID or something. But yeah, I published it late at night and then for the next few months started to actually structure this thing figured out which smart contracts we could use, got feedback from more and more people, started to grow the membership a bit and get people more and more involved. And we ended up with kicking off a pilot. So that the structure of this thing then and what it is now can be summarized. It's, it's Protocol Guild is a collective of core protocol contributors who have a high impact track record of active contributions. So it's only people who are actively contributing to the protocol are represented on chain as a list with some weights associated with it. And there's no token, there's no native funding mechanism built into it. We're only concerned with maintaining this list and the weights associated with it. So in that sense, it's a very, very simple mechanism, but we try to do that single task very, very well and competently and be transparent about how eligibility is structured, how people can join, how people leave, things like this. We try to be very intentional about how it's structured. So it's an on-chain contract, uh, a split contract that's updated every quarter with any changes to membership or their their weights. And people can then send funds to this contract. And that's a way of kind of completing the idea that Danny had proposed in that original tweet of like, okay, now we have this mechanism for distributing funding in an equitable way that helps contribute to long-term core protocol development. We added another mechanism to it, which is a vesting contract, which helps to ensure that any funds sent to this or any contributions from donors will vest over one year. And this is another way where you can help to incentivize long term contributions by distributing funds over time instead of, you know, just making them available to people immediately. So, yeah, we took this infrastructure, this split contract and the vesting contract launched a pilot in May of last year, and it ran for one year. And we went to a bunch of different DAOs. I'm not going to list them all because I'll probably forget somebody, but you can see it in the documentation. A lot of the bigger on-chain organizations we made governance requests to. We managed to raise, I think, around 10 or 12 million during the pilot and then a little bit after through some unsolicited contributions, which was just really incredible to see that the community saw value in what we were claiming, or they generally agreed that, yes, it's important for us to fund our dependencies, this infrastructure that we use to you know, build Uniswap. Uh, the, the Uniswap community was one of the, the groups that funded us. And, and now they're capable, they have a mechanism to redirect some of the, the financial ways they've benefited through the Uni token. They can now fund the core protocol contributors directly. So yeah, we, we raised a good bit of money for the pilot, and but intentionally kept it at that level. We knew that there would be some things that are uncertain 
about how it operates or things that we need to improve. So kept it at that level. And then once the pilot is completed and we're kind of at that point now and we're incorporating the learnings, we're going to launch another iterated version with some improvements and hope to raise a hundred million this time and it'll vest for a little bit longer, a couple of years. Yeah, that was kind of a whirlwind summary of Protocol Guild, but let me know if there's anything that I maybe didn't describe well or things that you're curious to hear more about. Yeah, a bunch of different things. And yeah, it's very interesting. I didn't know that uh, this is how it works. And uh, was it uh, seeded by the Ethereum Foundation? Is it receiving any money from the Ethereum Foundation or is it just like yeah, getting from big protocols and other donors? There's no money from the Ethereum Foundation from for the pilot. I mean, I am employed by the EF, so I guess that's one contribution. But yeah, the, this was all from the, the community itself, the funding at least. Makes sense. It's very cool. But yeah, so basically what you're saying is that the way it works, then uh, people send uh, money to this address and then uh, the money steadily gets uh, distributed to the people based on the weight and uh, most of the money is vesting and then yeah getting distributed on a monthly basis or how does it go so the zero splits contract are permissionless in that anybody can push funds from the vesting contract to the split so you could uh withdraw every block if you really wanted to but you would lose money to to gas so yeah any any amount of time members have the ability to withdraw at any time. And that, that was really important in terms of reducing the number of things that the number of like dials and levers that the membership has to concern themselves with. So if we were doing manual payouts, or for example, we didn't do this objective time waiting, we would be forced to make, okay, we have to pay this person uh, this much, and now we have to do a distribution for them. And that would be pretty silly that we're not leveraging what smart contracts can do, which is automating things that would otherwise be really high intensive, high overhead. It would be very difficult to do this without a smart contract. So I'm, I'm happy to say we were able to find something that accomplishes this and anybody can withdraw at any time whenever they like. Got it, it's super cool. And uh, how do you decide on the weights and like how often do you adjust them? This was, like I said, in the same philosophy of reducing the, the, like the scope of the number of things that members are responsible for managing, we agreed to have everybody be time-weighted. So I think incentive compatible, it's really hard to game this sort of weighting. So if you join two years ago and I joined a year ago, you would have a little bit less than double. There's a square root function in the formula, but beyond that, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's just if you've been around longer, you will have a higher weight. And we found this is really powerful because it accomplishes some things in, in that we want to recognize people who have been around a long time, who have some accumulated knowledge or uh, institutional knowledge, if you want to think of it that way. They understand how the Ethereum protocol works. And our goal as the collective or the royal we, the Ethereum community is interested in keeping these people with this deep knowledge keeping them around at least long enough to pass that knowledge on to the next cohort of people so if there's a really high churn in the the number of people who are contributing to the core protocol it's not going to make any progress it won't be able to integrate changes because people will be constantly catching up to just learn what the the state of the protocol is today and i'm exaggerating obviously we it's not as dramatic as i'm making it sound but 
it does affect the protocol when you have somebody join and then they get poached or they move on to another project kind of like within the one to two year range. Uh, so we want these people to stick around and time waiting accomplishes that in a nice way that's objective. We don't have to, de to decide amongst ourselves any waiting scheme or allocating, you know, oh, I think this person did extra work this month. Now we have to adjust the weights. Uh, all we do is say, uh, we export whatever the formula says about what current weights are and then just put them directly into the split contract. And in, in the V2, this will be all on chain right now, it's off chain. But yeah, we do this every quarter, just given how the, the contracts are structured and, and the process we use to, to manage and update the membership. But yeah, I think time waiting is one of the most important aspects because we're able to sidestep a lot of the, and, and this, this probably doesn't work for a smaller group and we were forced into this um, mechanism or this particular type of waiting scheme. It would just be way too much overhead to try to do this for the 160 members that we have now is what we're at. I, I think it, it works well enough for its purposes and helps to avoid a lot of the overhead that would come with it, like a manual waiting scheme. And you also avoid degenerate cases where if you have a waiting system that's tied to like GitHub commits or as soon as you start to specify like granular waiting inputs, that's basically an invitation to game it. Like on a long enough timeline, someone will say, or you know, even subconsciously, they know that the way that their actions are being measured will produce financial gain. It's just human nature. Like this will be in the back of your head. But one thing you can't game is the time that you show up <laughs> and start contributing. The best way to game it is to start contributing as early as possible and stick around. And from the view of the mechanism and what we're trying to accomplish, this isn't gaming it. This is exactly in line with, with what we're trying to accomplish. So it, it works out great for, for both ends. Right, that makes complete sense. Yeah, we were using uh, SourceCred for about two years, which uh, yeah, uh, you specify weights. So it's like you get your weight based on the number of uh, PRs or the number of commits and comments and reviews and stuff like that. So yeah, what does end up happening long term is people like splitting up their contributions across uh, many PRs and commits. So they like get paid. Did you, you experience this? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. See? Yeah, exactly. It just starts playing out. Yeah. Like uh, time wait. So it's uh, like time as in how long have you been working or like also like uh, in terms of hours? Yeah, exactly. It's just this. We input your start date or whatever you submit is May 5th, 2021. Whatever date you put in, that's sort of the date that you're stuck with for the rest of your membership. You can't go back and change it. And we do have some requirements for so members are expected to be working full time or at least close to full time. Anything less than that, you get there's a multiplier that we have for anybody who's less than half time gets a like a 0.5 multiplier on any of their whatever their weight would be like their time waiting. There's a small multiplier. So we do have a little bit of wiggle room for people that aren't working full time. But again, this we hopefully balance having to be too intrusive. Like the, the worst version of this is like you're tracking people down to the minute they're required to submit or check in with somebody for their hours every week. And then we have to like take all those hours, put them on chain. And maybe this would work for a smaller group that wanted to recognize this type of granular input. But for 
a number of reasons, mostly just like how much overhead there would be to tracking this. We just limit it to these two tiers. And then the, the, the other thing is like the main consideration for a lot of the reasons why we don't want to encumber the membership with making more decisions or managing these inputs is just because they're already so the, the, another big concept is the idea of self-curation or self-governance. And so it's all member run. There's no like external council, at least for now. All the members are expected to do the, the work of maintaining the organization. And when we start to do things like require people to submit hours, require, you know, a peer evaluation of those hours and the work that went in or PRs and assigning weights relative to that, you take away from the work that they actually want to be doing, which is stewarding the core protocol. And you end up creating this sort of parasitic being that feeds of the, the time of the individuals that could be better contributed elsewhere. So time waiting helps us with this. The idea of self-curation means that we can't outsource. We're, we're forced to deal with the consequences of the decision. You can't outsource it. For example, optimism, I don't, maybe outsourcing has negative associations with it, but like the RPGF program outsources all this evaluation to badge holders. And that's requires a lot of human time to review all these applications. Like that's just part of how the mechanism is designed. Yeah. And so we, we made an intentional choice to limit the number of inputs that were required to track and, and update every, every quarter. Right. It makes sense. And yeah, that was going to be my next question. Like, does everybody work uh, full time or how does it work? But uh, do you have any kind of evaluation, verification or anything? Or like, how do you prevent people from sandbagging? Like we had this, uh, this shipyard in my city where like just over the decades of work, people just contributing less and less. And you just see like people who like contribute less and then see like they still get paid the same. And then there's more people seeing that and then over time like over the the decades that it was open there were just like less and less people actually contributing and more people barbecuing and then it <laughs> went uh, bust <laughs> so how do you prevent that from happening that's a great image yeah how do we prevent core devs from just barbecuing and taking their time off so the, the thing that is maybe unique to protocol guild and core protocol development at least for now, is that it's a very high trust environment. And that's sort of why we're able to get away with not having these granular tracking mechanisms. If you have maybe something like ENS has a very globally distributed community, many people coming in to work on the protocol, and it's at a much higher scale, they might do their small grants program where they require this, it's managed, it requires a tighter accountability. But with core contributors, there's a bit more trust afforded or granted between the members. And like I said, hopefully this holds up over time because it's kind of what the mechanism is predicated on. But we're able to sidestep some of those constraints. You have your the people that you work with every day. So a researcher you're collaborating with as another researcher. Or if you're on a client team, like you're already working with people on your team to work on whatever EIP is being implemented. So there are these ex some existing accountability structures that we like protocol guild is able to outsource some of those accountability concerns to in the future let's say protocol guild grows to a much higher amount of funding that's flowing through it you may have people who no longer take a salary from a company for example a client team 
and they just are funded directly by the protocol guild itself or the value that's flowing through it so they're sort of independent unaffiliated and in that case they may have a greater distance between the existing accountability mechanisms or they'll be sort of in between things that are outside of protocol guild but are leveraged by it and the accountability mechanisms that protocol guild holds for itself which are pretty minimal so in the future maybe you'll have more people who are completely independent and this will be a greater concern but at least for now you know the, the amount of let's say damage or free riding that somebody can do because we we aren't concerned with this granular tracking someone can't inflate their it goes both ways like i can't say oh i worked 80 hours this week i should get in an 80 hours waiting in the this week's record like there's no way for me to game that because we don't track that the only thing that can be tracked is like am i still around and do my peers think i'm contributing of course you know somebody can lie or just like not show up but eventually it will it'll play out there will be people who get removed over time this will this will just sort of work itself out and there there will be there will definitely be some slack in the system or you know, somebody who's not actually working on a project who for two quarters manages to maintain their membership. But eventually it'll, it'll sort of work itself out. And I think this flexibility or not slack in the system, but there's some ability for the mechanism can absorb or it's capable of absorbing these inefficiencies without breaking the mechanism. Right. And even if, if there is some of that, like uh, the lack of, all of those other mechanisms still like saves enough that uh, this doesn't cost too much, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot what I was gonna ask, but uh, yeah, the the way we we work now is through coordinate. So people report their monthly contributions and then get their weight assigned based on their on based on that month's contributions. Yeah, I actually looked into coordinate. Like that's probably a great solution for a lot of smaller projects or ones that are specifically working in this way so yeah um, definitely I, I was probably partially inspired by coordinate though i've never used it myself oh i thought uh, the protocol guilds predates uh, coordinate uh i don't think so i feel like coordinate was already around do you know when it launched uh, not really no i don't remember Oh, yeah, I can't remember what I was going to ask you. I know that uh, the last question that I got besides that uh, is that uh, the one that uh, caused all the confusion, which, yeah, I thought that you were referring to Project Cybersyn, uh, but you said that uh, people were accusing you of, uh, or was that even related to Protocol Guild or, or another project okay. you were working on, but you said it like bottom-up uh, bottom governance project and like accused of being uh, communist. Yeah, so you're referencing um, Twitter interaction we had a couple weeks ago, maybe maybe a month or so ago. Yeah, about the idea of just like projects being misunderstood. And I responded with, oh, yeah, I've, I've been misunderstood in this context. Um, and the, the example was, I think it goes to like it, it goes to show just Protocol Guild is not well understood or maybe a better way of framing it is just maybe it's not well-known or well-explained enough and uh, it's just going to take time for people to understand the concept or us to modify how we explain it. But yeah, there was a panel at Luzuzalu I was not part of, but there's a recording available and it was kind of centered on this, a lot of misunderstandings around 
protocol guild and what it's trying to accomplish and some of the optimism team members and the the, the panel host they referred to it as communism but kind of in a derogatory way i think the discussion was centered on the differences between rpgf so this this program that optimism runs and the weighting allocation that protocol guild has had decided to use and so within the optimism the last round, not the one that's currently running, but within the last round, they had produced this thing called the 4844 collection. And it was a list of people that the, the Optimism Foundation had put together that were working on EIP 4844. And for a number of different reasons, myself and a lot of Protocol Guild members pushed back saying it's a degenerate ranking system. So kind of criticized this the production of this list because it focused on a feature of the protocol and not the long-term maintenance. And, and this kind of goes back to our conversation around weighting and granularity and what sort of things do you recognize in the mechanism? And whatever you recognize, it's going to degenerate towards those producing those things. And that can be good or bad. But in, in their case, they were focused on a specific feature of the protocol, but their allocation scheme neglected all of the people in the background who are doing, you know, the testing for the integration into the client, the researchers who are improving the mechanism itself. And it just focused on a narrow slice of people who are working on a feature of the core protocol. So the criticism was like, you know, I get where you're coming from. You want to reward the impact of people working on the specific EIP. Unfortunately, the Ethereum protocol is produced as a commons and it should likely be funded as a commons. Like these mechanisms should reflect each other accurately. The, the, the criticism at the time was around their allocation through this collection and the idea that the protocol should be funded holistically. Sorry, <laughs> to get back to the original question. Uh, this panel at Zuzulu had some Optimism team members and then some, some Protocol Guild members. And it was interesting to see the, the misconceptions or the ways that we can improve communication around the project because they lean really heavy into this idea like the market will figure out how to reward impact and the counterpoint that protocol guild takes is that the market is incapable of of recognizing impact in many cases like we don't rely on markets to fund our roads because that would be a crazy outcome like you you wouldn't necessarily get full coverage you would not have the consistency that we i mean i'm, I'm speaking from a u.s perspective i don't know what the road systems are like in other countries but i would doubt that they are majority funded by markets. And this is like the, the constant discussion around public goods and how they are funded, maintained long-term. These types of questions are not new, but it's interesting to see them come up again in the context of public goods funding and whether markets are capable of allocating efficiently to them. And the entire disagreement was around whether things like optimism, how they can, as the optimism RPGF, like how they slot in or how they consider mechanisms like Protocol Guild. Long lead up, but basically they, they said that Protocol Guild is communism. It's like a top-down uh, allocation of weights, when in reality, it's, it's my conception is completely the opposite. It's this bottom-up uh, collaboration, a collective of people coming together to put themselves under the same rubric, saying, okay, this time waiting is, you know, it's roughly accurate. It's not going to correspond one to one to somebody's contributions to the protocol. But, but we recognize as members that this is sufficiently 
accurate in terms of a, me a waiting mechanism that we want to put ourselves under. So this is very, very much bottoms up. It's individuals coming together. There are no companies that are receiving funds through this mechanism. Whereas it's ironic that they use the term communism because the, the RPGF mechanism is administered top down. They have a very particular opinionated structure, which is fine. I think there's there's space for people to make opinionated funding programs. But I think it just comes down to a misconception around what Protocol Guild is and how it's structured. And I think it's unfortunate that they use the like they tried to use the communist term as a, you know, as a negative attribute when in some ways that's that's one of the, the really good aspects is that it's equitably distributed. And in that way, you can avoid the contention around who gets this amount of the funds flowing through the mechanism. You sidestep all those concerns by leaning into the equitable allocation model. Right. Yeah, I thought that that might be the case. The why they accuse it of being communist because it's kind of like the from each according to their ability, and then yeah, the the outcomes are the same. Well, not the same, but like depending on the the time invested. But yeah, I, I didn't expect them to think that the market can reward impact like being so public good focused like isn't it kind of obvious that the market doesn't really <laughs> care about the impact like that's not what it optimizes for. right like that's kind of the the whole <laughs> the whole problem with public goods funding. E exactly <laughs> that's very interesting like they have a bigger vision for i mean we don't have to get into it now but they have a bigger vision for how rpgf scales and how they get impact to equal value received so whoever's generating the impact is getting some financial outflow from it to be clear i think they're doing an incredible experiment at scale and that's more than can be said for a lot of the other l2s but i do have some criticisms of the mechanism itself yeah i mean i'm a definitely a fan of the project like of all the layer twos like it's definitely the most uh, philosophically aligned with what we're doing and we just got a grant recently from them and we'll be migrating to optimism so Oh, nice. I just, just want to put out that disclaimer out there. But yeah, that was an unexpected uh, source of that opinion. And like, yeah, to, to watch your comment about the roads and like the market, like in Croatia and probably like some other parts of Europe, like you also have private highways. And then what happens is like highway, like being a highway, it's kind of a monopoly on this part of the road. And there's like, you can't really, <laughs> there's not much choice in whether you're going to take it or not. And so what ends up happening is like, okay, it's a private owner, so they just keep increasing the tolls. Whereas like if it's a state built, then it, in our case, it's also a shittier road, but at least it's like, <laughs> <laughs> at least it's going to not uh, not become expensive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, yeah, there are toll roads for sure in the US. And then there are publicly owned roads that have a toll to support them. But <laughs> I, I, I have experienced this myself too here in the US. And uh, I remember the the question that I forgot, and it's the final question. I see we just crossed an hour. I I usually promise to keep it under an hour, so let's uh, uh, get it done. So the question was, uh, how do you keep the the trust high? Like uh, as you, especially as you scale like above uh, hundred people, like do you have a very good uh, vetting process before hiring people, or like yeah, how do how do you keep uh, how do you keep the trust high? So this is another thing that we sort of outsource to an existing something. So in the case of accountability, there's these existing teams and structures outside of Protocol Guild that do that 
host a lot of this, like, these accountability mechanisms. Like, like members are typically being paid an existing salary by consensus, by the Ethereum Foundation, by uh, all these private client teams, these commercial entities that host client teams. So they have these existing accountability mechanisms. So we're able to protocol guild. The mechanism is sort of overlaid. You can you can imagine it as like a, a net or like a very thin gauze that's draped over all of these existing relationships or existing incentive structures. And it and then it sort of draws these people together under you know they still have their existing relationships, but we're able to draw them together under another supplemental incentive structure. In the long term, like you said, over 100 people, I think we started, we launched the contract with 90, we're at 160 today. Uh, there's a Dune dashboard actually where you can track the, the membership and all the funds flowing through this because it's all on chain, which is really cool. But if you go down to the membership query, you'll see that uh, we started to level off around this number. I think last last update we had 152 and I think this one will have uh, 160 or 159 around there. So growth has slowed, which is good because I, I think, especially for a new organization, it's hard to get past this point if you know we started with 300 or 600 members. So that's good in that sense. So we're able to learn while we're, while we're scaling and iterating and improving the process. It may be a challenge in the future. Like maybe there's some need to readjust the accountability mechanisms. Like we discover that there's some member who's you know, been on the split for two years and they haven't contributed anything. Like that would be a failure of this model. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but I guess we'll see what ultimately ends up playing out in the future, whether we can actually use this low touch, high trust type of commitment to build the core protocol and maintain it over time. Right, and that's, that's cool. And uh, yeah, I like the idea of like using this, having this sort of external external verification in a way just like less bias less connection to people and in general like more likely to be honest and it's kind of aligned with uh, my thinking that like long term and there will be uh, the same way that we have uh, smart contract auditors there will be like DAO contribution auditors that would just be like going through DAOs and verifying that uh, people aren't just like receiving grants and getting paid but not actually <laughs> doing anything yeah, yeah, for sure. I think th there's another like parallel role that I think is emerging, or at least it's theorized about. It's uh, impact evaluators. I don't know if you've heard this term, but yeah, this is something that people are talking about now as a way to possibly, the conception of this role, at least, is, is starting to bubble up in some conversations, which is interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard the term, but yeah, I've been thinking about it over the, the past few months, so and there will definitely be some kind of impact uh, auditors or like impact miners or however else we end up uh, <laughs> calling them yeah yeah yeah. all right uh yeah this has been a, a great conversation going back all the way to mist and uh, downloading yeah. the whole blockchain to use it so <laughs> yeah it was fun great thank yeah thank you for having me I, re I really appreciate it yeah thank you for coming on and yeah, i'm glad we had this uh misunderstanding yeah so people in the audience are <laughs> missed this whole part of the conversation but i reached out to trent based on his uh, response to a tweet which ended up being something completely different than what i thought so like this podcast episode is kind of an accident so <laughs> that's cool <laughs> and it ended up being great yeah definitely cool. yeah thank you again and see you around all right thank you <laughs>